And I think what's been particularly catastrophic in eastern Rota is the number of people and civilians killed in such a short time frame. At one point, the reports were over 70 people per day were being killed. Um, the total now is about 1,900 since this latest escalation of violence, and many of them have been children. Civil war in Syria is now entering its eighth year, and in eastern Ghouta, an area of Damascus, civilians have been under siege for more than four years. Aula Abara is an infectious diseases consultant in London. She has family still in Syria, and the situation there has prompted her and her co-authors, Diana Rays and Miriam Orcutt, to write an editorial that we've just published on bmj.com. The title, Systematic Destruction of Healthcare in Eastern Ghouta. I'm Berta Twisselman, an editor with the BMJ, and in this interview, Aula and I discuss the situation on the ground, what the civilian impact of the war as a whole has been, what our governments are doing or not doing to stop the conflict, and what you as a listener can do to help. So the reason we decided um, to write this editorial was just, I think with Syria now, it's entering its um, eighth year, actually. So the conflict actually started in March 2011. And none of us could think that the situation, the humanitarian situation, the medical situation, the geopolitical situation could get any worse. But of course, as we've seen in the last uh, month or so, it really can. And that's what prompted us to write this editorial Talking about Eastern Ghouta, talking about the humanitarian situation and the medical situation, and also alluding to the suffering of not only civilians, but also patients who are living under bombardment. What changed on the 18th and 19th of February is the degree of bombardment. So in the last few weeks, since this escalation of violence uh, started, there's been reports of chemical attacks. There's been reports of chlorine, napalm, uh, even yesterday in Douma, which is the last area that's um, not under government control, there's been phosphorus bombs on the remaining 190,000 or so civilians. And these people are trapped there. So for me, what makes this so catastrophic, even more so than the bombardment that's happening in Idlib and other parts of Syria, is that these are people under siege who didn't have the right to leave, even when they were suffering under these circumstances. So to give you an example, um, if you think about chlorine being used against civilians, so what was happening is was the civilians were going down into the basements to hide away from what was happening. And actually the chlorine, because it sinks down because it because of its because it's heavier than air, it drives people up. And when they went up to above the ground, they were being targeted directly when they went up. And I think what's been particularly catastrophic in Eastern Ruta is the number of people and civilians killed in such a short time frame. At one point, the reports were over 70 people per day were being killed. Um, the total now is about 1,900 since this latest escalation of violence, and many of them have been children. So if I take you back to the siren attacks, the numbers there are about 1,400 civilians that were killed, and of those, over 400 were children. And that's been such a marker of this conflict where 
whether you're a civilian or a child, uh, you are not protected. And we do need to bear in mind that international humanitarian law and the Geneva Conventions um, have stipulations around civilians um, and around also the protection of hospitals and also the protection of healthcare workers. So there are very few remaining healthcare workers in eastern Rota. Um, and those remaining, I mean, I'm a medical professional and to see what they go through just to treat their patients. And for me, I will never be able to imagine what it's like to see a patient suffering so much and, for instance, not to have the means either to treat them or to provide them with adequate pain relief or to see them pass away from not having adequate supplies. So would you be able to put this into context in terms of number of people killed, number of children killed, um, how does it compare all over Syria? To give you an idea of the whole of Syria, so so far in the conflict, at least half a million uh, people have been killed as a direct consequence of this conflict. Um, And that's notwithstanding those that have been uh, driven from their homes, whether internally displaced uh, or are refugees in neighbouring countries and now increasingly in Europe. Um, The area that we're discussing is eastern Ruta. So this is a suburb of Damascus um, that housed up to 400,000 civilians uh, who've been under siege since the sarin attacks which occurred in uh, 2013 and it meant that it was very difficult for people to come in and out and also those who were critically unwell who required medical evacuation weren't for instance able to come out of those areas to receive the treatment they require and that's particularly the case for those who Um, have been injured, but also those who have chronic diseases. So, for instance, cancer, dialysis patients uh, who've suffered under these circumstances, also alongside the fact that they have very little medical care and medical professionals already remaining in those areas. So when I speak to Syrian healthcare workers, they often say that they they and their civilian populations do not want want health facilities near them because they know that that puts them at increased risk of being targeted. And for me, as a health professional, that is a catastrophic failure internationally for us not to be able to protect our civilians and our health worker colleagues. Is this unusual or is this happening in any conflict around the world? I wouldn't say that it's happening in any conflict, but it is happening in many conflicts. Yemen, in Afghanistan, um, in some of the uh, ongoing conflicts in sub-Saharan Africa. So it's not a new thing, but the way that it's being done with very little concern for any retribution and the way that it's being done in a very ongoing and very targeted way uh, on such a scale is something that marks the Syrian conflict out over and above many of the others. Um, Medicines on Frontier has reported that many of its facilities have been attacked. Uh, The Syrian American Medical Society collects data on hospital facilities that are being attacked. And there are many other NGOs that are trying to provide healthcare to an already traumatised population. uh, And they report uh, not only just attacks on health facilities, but repeated attacks on the same health facilities and also the direct targeting um, of particular Syrian health professionals uh, that are known to be providing good care uh, for their patients. For us to feel that we will ever be criminalised for treating one patient or another is something that isn't new, but it's certainly something that has been catastrophic in Syria, with many Syrian healthcare workers detained. 
The other important thing is that it has resulted in the exodus of many Syrian health professionals because for them to stay in Syria was great risk to them and their families. So it has meant that the remaining healthcare workers are under even greater strain um, than um, if their colleagues had stayed. I had naively assumed that um, the UN um, and laws were protecting healthcare workers and civilians. What is the UN Security Council actually doing? So on the 24th of February, uh, the UN Security Council uh, passed Resolution 2401, which demanded that 30-day cessation of hostilities, um, and also to enable humanitarian aid delivery uh, to enter those areas that are besieged. However, this resolution came rather late in, in this escalation of violence, and also bearing in mind that this area, like many others in Syria, have also been under siege um, for some for years. Um, the UN Security Council is very interesting, and so I'm not an expert on on uh, on on the UN or on law. But from what I understand, is that there's a requirement for nine of fifteen members of the UN Security Council uh, to vote in favour of a resolution. Um, to provide it with um, legitimacy. Um, However, there is a power of veto from one of the five permanent members of the Security Council. Russia vetoed this, and what they actually asked for were, well, they said that they'd provide their own humanitarian corridor, but also that they would have five-hour-per-day ceasefires to allow humanitarian aid to come in. Part of the problem with this is for a driver to come in, have all the necessary checks, offload and return within such a short time frame is nigh impossible. So eventually humanitarian aid did enter Eastern Ruta. However, with the kind of government inspectors, um, it was noted that any life-saving equipment or treatment, and that includes uh, means for any sort of surgical care, dialysis, uh, even insulin, uh, was removed from these convoys. And I think the WHO reported that almost 70% of what was to be sent in was actually removed. And then even with these aid convoys, when they did finally reach the areas that they were meant to reach, um, a few days ago it was reported that the last aid to be placed in a warehouse, that warehouse was actually bombed. Um, And so we are in this sort of catastrophic situation where very little aid is getting in. What aid is getting in isn't able to reach the people that require it. And it's not always what is needed for the people um, in terms of life-saving equipment and medicines uh, to ensure that those people who are there who are suffering uh, have the best chance of life um, as they deserve. Right. This is incredibly affecting. And um, uh, as a listener, you might feel rather helpless, even as an interviewer. Um, What can an individual do to help? Um, I think that's a very good and very important question. As an individual, health professionals can stay informed and advocate and also show solidarity with our health professional colleagues who are remaining and working under these circumstances, because they need to know that they are not forgotten. There are excellent charities and organisations, including Medicine Sans Frontier, the Syrian American Medical Society, who are providing care in these areas. So donating to these reputable organisations 
um, is one way that we can help because even a small donation will go a long way uh, in the areas that we um, are discussing. And something that's very important is the area now in Eastern Ghouta, the last remaining area who, which is not under government control is Duma. And that's where about 190,000 civilians remain and they remain under siege and now they are being attacked. So the very latest is suspected phosphor at phosphorus attacks in the last few days. So it's not too late for us to encourage our leaders and to pressure our leaders to ensure that they do uphold international humanitarian law. And also now is the time um, for us as an international community to ask for the restructuring of the UN Security Council so that their resolutions can be effectively enforced and respected because now, even though they are passed, they are not upheld. Uh, and that has been catastrophic to Syrian civilians uh, in the areas such as Eastern Ghouta and also others. And we must remember that this may not be the, the first and I sadly expect not the last time that we will see something happening like what we are seeing in Eastern Ghouta. So in 2016, we saw the fall of Aleppo, another area that was placed under siege, and then um, civilians that were bombed, and then they were forced to leave their homes. And very sadly, that there are other areas in Syria um, that might be affected in the same way in the future. So now is the time for us to ensure that our leaders do uphold um, the safeguards that are in place to protect civilians. You've been listening to Aula Abara talk about the situation in Eastern Ghouta, an area of Damascus. Her article, Systematic Destruction of Healthcare in Eastern Ghouta, is available online now on bmj.com. For all of our previous podcasts, which are available for free, have a look at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. You'll find hundreds of interviews there. I'm Berta Twizzleman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>